Okay, so <clears throat> talk a little bit about emptiness. Emptiness is the fourth of the three characteristics. Fourth of the three characteristics. Emptiness—it's the Buddha. The Buddha never articulated it as such, but later later Buddhas did. Uh, it's really um, emptiness em- embraces these truths that are being expressed in the terms of impermanence and no self. And uh, as a matter of fact, a, a lot of what comes from understanding of dependent origination. Uh, and, and you'll see that as, as we describe what emptiness is, you'll see that it's an expression of the same things that we've already spoken of. Emptiness, to be empty, is to is for there to be an absence of something, right? To be empty of something. That something is not there. What things are empty of, in this view of emptiness, they're empty of self-existence, and of self-nature. So what is self-existence? To be self-existent means to be, to, to exist independently. And you can see we've already, uh, we've already attacked that notion from very many different directions. For something, if, if something were actually self-existent, it would, it would have brought itself into existence. It would not be the result of causes and conditions. And yet we find that absolutely everything that we, that we look at, everything that we look for, is the result of causes and conditions. So things are empty of self-existence in that they uh, are due to causes and conditions. But they are also empty of self-existence in another sense, too. And that is, this goes back to this idea of are there things or not? Why do there appear to be things? There appear to be things because the mind imposes a separation on reality which divides it up into things. Thingness is the result of separation. And the separation is imposed by the mind. So thingness, in its essence, is an imputation of the mind. It is not, there are no things out there. There is only this wholeness, this indivisible wholeness. When I say indivisible, it's really an indivisible wholeness. No things to it. Thingness is an imputation of the mind. So, not only is everything that we look at the result of causes and conditions, but everything we look at, its its separate existence is an impute, is imputed by the mind only. So that's what we mean by empty of self nature, or empty of self existence. So yeah, here it is on the next slide. All things are empty of self existence means the existence of separate things depends not only upon causes and conditions, but upon the perceiving mind as well. This does not mean that nothing exists outside of the mind. There is an ultimate reality. 
we are a part of that ultimate reality. And that ultimate reality, as we've already mentioned, it is the source of our sensory experiences. And the notion that everything comes from the mind and there is no external reality, that's a mistaken view. It's a false view. It's just that we cannot know ultimate reality in itself. It is unknowable. That's what it means that all things are empty of self-existence. Um, let's just look for a moment. The, the notion of God, as it's sometimes presented, is God is uncreated. So God would be an example of something that's self-existent. God is, is uncreated, unchanging, eternal, infinite, so, um, and we're not really trying to deny or affirm the existence of God. We're just saying that in, in our experience, in terms of anything that we can know, in terms of anything that we can, can connect with directly or anything that we can know anything about indirectly through inference, there isn't anything that is self-existent. Now, there is a little, it's an almost um, linguistic kind of thing in here, a trick of language. And that is that if we define self-existent as something that doesn't depend upon causes and condition, then an absence, like emptiness is an absence, then emptiness is not dependent upon causes and conditions. Because absences, it's like empty space. Empty space is just empty space. Nothing makes it. Nothing creates it. And so, it just linguistically, we can say that, well, maybe emptiness is self-existent. But it, emptiness is not self-existent in the second sense. It has to do with it being the result of an imputation of the mind. Emptiness may not be the result of causes and conditions, but emptiness is an imputation of the mind. And so, therefore, even emptiness is not self-existent. So nothing at all is self-existent. But that doesn't mean that nothing exists. Okay? Yes? Well, that's a, after... 20 minutes of trying to get my mind around that idea, it just goes, eh. Okay? Which idea? <laughs> what we've been talking about, just I, the self-existence? Yes, the whole business of that. Self-existence. I mean, and my question is, 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 why is it important for me to... Well, the thing is, it was much more important in the past because Self-existence, that lack of self-existence of things, is, is something that is so obvious to people nowadays that it's almost it's it's such a no-brainer that when we bring it up, we get confused. Like, what are we talking about here? It must be something that's too complicated for me to understand since uh, uh, it's even being brought up. But you don't believe anything self-existent. You know, everything's due to causes and conditions. 
And you know that, that the way you see it is, uh, you know, it's, it's your mind that's seeing it as, as, as separate. So if you know that, you understand emptiness of self-existence. The problem, emptiness of self-nature is only slightly more difficult to grasp. It's a really important idea. But emptiness of self-existence, at one time, that was a challenge for people because they thought everything was self-existent. But we don't do that nowadays. We, we haven't done that for several generations. The only thing people in this modern world think is self-existent is God and maybe a soul. And if they really understood the implications of self-existence, they'd realize that if they had, if they if they did have a soul and it was self-existent, it would be irrelevant to them because it would be outside of the realm of causes and conditions, and we are embedded in the realm of causes and conditions. And so, it could be there, but it doesn't make any difference to us. Same thing with God. You know, if that kind of self-existent God really existed, because it can't be affected by anything, because it's not a part of the realm of causes and conditions, it's not going to have any relevance to us. Could the whole system be God? What's that? Could the whole system be God? Is the whole... System God. Yeah, the whole... It, 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 yeah. Now, if you define God, there's, there's other ways that you can define God in which in which the term God has a lot more meaning and makes a lot more sense. I would define God as ultimate reality in its totality. If you if you define God that way, it is no problem. That is self-existent. Then it, right, then it is self-existent. What's that? Then it is self-existent. Yes, ultimate reality is self-existent. That's not yeah. due to causes and conditions. And our mind can't even grasp it, so it's definitely not <laughs> a result of an imputation of our mind. Ultimate reality can be self-existent. Empty of self-nature. So we take in information through our sense organs. Our mind organizes it so that it's meaningful to us. You know, the same way your cat's mind takes its sensory experience <laughs> and makes it meaningful to it. And and the nature that your cat's mind attributes to the things around it, believe me, it's pretty different than the nature that your mind does. And if you observe, any of you who own cats and observe them, you know that, you know what I mean. Much less uh, the nature that a, a lizard's mind attributes to the thing that it experiences, or a caterpillar. Okay? So, your mind organizes experience so that it makes sense to your mind. And so when we say, this thing has that nature, then what we mean is, my mind sees this thing in that way because that makes sense to my mind. So your mind is imputing a nature to, it, it imputes thingness to things, and then once it's imputed, imputed this thingness, then it imputes a nature. And it's, it's not that the nature that it imputes is divorced from that aspect of ultimate reality that's the source of these sensations because it is. There is a relationship. Those, those sensations arose following strictly upon the laws of causality. And your mind's been accumulating information about causality for a long time and so the nature that your mind imputes to this thing that it has imputed 
is a reflection of that information that is taken in. That information is, in turn, based, based upon something that really, something about the nature of ultimate reality. But it's very much dependent upon your mind, and that's why the cat's perception and your perception and the caterpillar's perception are also very different. Not only that, the nature you impute tomorrow may be different than the nature you impute today, because your mind changes in between. Okay? So, these things that we think we see, and these things that we think we understand the nature of, they are not self-existent, nor do they have a self-nature. The nature that we're seeing is the nature that is provided by our minds, and its accuracy or lack thereof is a reflection of the capacity of our mind. And at the very best, it's dramatically incomplete. It's dramatically inadequate. So we can't know the nature of ultimate reality. But that doesn't mean that ultimate reality doesn't have a self-nature. But it's not knowable to us. Our minds aren't big enough to encompass it. As a matter of fact, no mind could possibly be big enough to encompass ultimate reality except the mind that is ultimate reality itself. So, Does that mind know itself? Um, I don't know because I can't be that mind. <laughs> but I think it must. I like to think it does. <laughs> See, that's exactly the same question. Can God know himself? Medieval theologians wrestled with that question. Because after all, God said he was unknowable. So how did the medievalists come down on that? Well, they're still working it out. <laughs> <laughs> I think they decided that God can't know himself. Because God, God has to be omniscient, and you can't be omniscient if you don't know yourself. Okay. Yes. So when we say that ultimate reality is unknowable, does that include to a Buddha? No, right? Um, the human mind of a Buddha cannot know ultimate reality, but to be a Buddha means to know the nature of ultimate reality. What does the nature mean? Well, these are all these things that we're talking about. The things that we can, a Buddha can know about ultimate reality. And the difference between a Buddha's knowledge and the knowledge that you'll go away from this retreat uh, tomorrow is that your knowledge is going to be of an intellectual nature and the Buddha's knowledge of exactly the same, same things is of a direct nature. But a human mind, including a Buddha's mind, can only form conceptual models and it, only can, it can only form conceptual models of a degree of sophistication that is permitted by that particular mind. So even a Buddha's mind is incapable of creating a model of ultimate reality that comes anywhere close to approximating ultimate reality in itself. As a matter of fact, minds only make models. And no model is ever equivalent to the thing that it is modeled of. Okay? So, in a sense, the, the 
a human being who would change the status of Buddhahood knows a lot about ultimate reality, but cannot know ultimate reality. Because ultimate reality is absolutely everything. Not only is ultimate reality everything that is, it's also everything that isn't. Ultimate reality is just too big, too much. So we can't experience What's that? We can't experience No, we can't experience it. But don't you experience glimpses of it? What's that? Don't you experience like small glimpses? You get you get all kinds of this is you learn all kinds of things about ultimate reality. You have glimpses of it. The, the most important glimpse of ultimate reality that we have is the experience of nirvana, of cessation, of emptiness. When the mind ceases its model making and we are still conscious. See, these are, these are the two things that are important. The mind has to stop its model making, and the mind has to at the same time be still conscious. And then what the experience of consciousness is going to be a glimpse into ultimate reality, because you've removed the obscuration of mental fabrications. And that's called nirvana, that's called the uh, experience of emptiness, that goes by different names in different traditions. Mm. But it, it is the cessation of mental formations that allows the glimpse of ultimate reality. It is through that... Also craving. What's that? And craving. This is, is, this yes, of course. The craving, the cessation of craving is... Uh, when the Craving is a mental formation, so when all mental formations cease, there's a cessation of craving as well. Right? As, as a matter of fact, on the approach to nirvana, it's the it's the attenuation, the diminution of craving down to nothing that allows you to have the experience of nirvana. Because craving drives your mind to keep generating mental formations. And it's when you reach a level of equanimity that is so powerful that as one moment of consciousness fades and the next moment arises, the mind refuses to fabricate an object. So the cessation of craving actually leads to the cessation of all other mental formations. You have the experience of nirvana, which is also the experience of emptiness. You look puzzled. I'm, I'm, I'm processing it. Okay. You made a model. Yes, that's right. Your minds, all, all of our minds want to to make a model of this, and that's good. Make a model, but always remember that it's a model and always be ready to tweak your model. <laughs> Does that mean we're back to living in the present moment? Um, and that would be a way of putting it, I guess, yeah. Although when you create a model, uh, what's happening in the present moment is the creating of a model. Just like sneaky. <laughs> well, it's not. I mean, you think about it. You plan for the future. If you're in the present moment, you know that you're planning for the future. It's when you're lost in the future and you forget the present that you're not in the present moment. So if you're creating a mental model, and you know you're creating a mental model, then you're in the present moment. If you're creating a mental model and you believe your model is reality, then you're not in the present moment. So what you said earlier implies that working on equanimity would really also hugely open the possibilities for 
for uh, having a first perception of, uh, of emptiness. Uh, absolutely, yeah. So, in terms of working on your equanimity, uh, I, I guess what comes to mind is how the Buddha did all those years of austerity. Um, if making yourself suffer basically is a way of for some people uh, to work on equanimity, like well, a crash course and trying to force the mind to. You know, the Buddha did it for all those years and gave it up because it didn't work for him. And he says, well, I, I think I'm sure that it probably helped prepare him. But what, what he told us and what I can tell you as well is you don't need to do that. Okay? That you, what are the, the shortest and quickest, the most efficient way to precipitate that, that direct experience of emptiness, that, uh, uh, experience of nirvana, is to have simultaneously powerful equanimity and powerful insight into the way things really are. When those two come together, then that was what will cause the mind to stop. To cultivate equanimity, rather than cultivating equanimity through imposing suffering upon yourself, samatha and insight both produce equanimity. So. If you practice samatha, you will come to a place where you have your mind is is in a state of joy and tranquility and equanimity. You'll have the equanimity of of samatha. The equanimity of samatha is related to the joy, because when you have because joy brings happiness, and when you have joy and happiness that's internally generated, you begin to have more and more powerful equanimity towards external things. We spend our lives thinking, this is going to make me happy, that's going to make me unhappy. Now I'm happy inside, and I don't care about this thing. I, I, don't, need, I don't need to feel good to make me happy. I'm already happy. And I don't need to be afraid of that feel bad, because my happiness isn't dependent upon things that happen to feel bad. And so you have the equanimity of samatha, which is a very powerful equanimity. That insight, as you start to have more and more insight, it produces an equanimity as well. And the equanimity of insight comes more from a disenchantment. Oh, everything's impermanent. There's no point in trying to cling to everything. Everything is empty. You know, everything is an illusion. Uh, there, there comes this sort of disenchantment which produces its own equanimity. Um, if you have the equanimity of insight without, by itself, without the equanimity of samatha, and you can have that. If you have the equanimity of, of insight without the equanimity of samatha, what it feels like is, God, this is, it feels like total despair. This is a total effing mess, and I'm just, just no way out of it. And it, it can't possibly get any better. We've got to find a way to escape from this. And nothing that arises has any appeal at all. That's a really powerful kind of equanimity, right? Total disenchantment. And it is a kind of equanimity. Now, it's a rough ride, and I don't recommend it. Much better that you should cultivate the equanimity of samatha and combine it with the equanimity of insight. That feels very different. Okay. 
if you have the, the equanimity that comes from samatha, you are already happy. You are already joyful. And so when it comes to the realization that none of this other stuff, I mean, you, you realize the truth of, of, of dukkha. You realize none of this other stuff can ever possibly make me happy anyway, but I don't care, I'm already happy. It's a totally different kind of equanimity. And, of course, these two kinds of equanimity are totally complementary. When you have them both at once, then, then that will precipitate this nirvana emptiness experience. Because your mind, something will come up in your mind. And with this equanimity and insight together, your, your mind just, yeah, I'm not going to do that anymore. And it stops. The mind stops. The fabrication stops. You have an experience of emptiness. You are completely conscious, and it changes you. You see something you've never seen before, and it changes you. So don't, I don't recommend cultivating equanimity through suffering. Although suffering is acknowledged by the Buddha as being one of the gateways to, uh, to awakening. And there are people who have become awakened through suffering. Not through their choice. There are some people who became enlightened as a result of, of uh, the, being in the Nazi concentration camps during the, the Holocaust. But they didn't choose that, and I wouldn't recommend anybody to choose this path. But, hey, like we said earlier, get lemons, make lemonade. If you find yourself in that situation, use it as a path to awake. That's what I was going to say. I think suffering is, I mean, oftentimes suffering is already there, so finding a way to make use of that yes. to bring more equanimity, I think any practices that can help us do that um, right. useful. Yeah. I'm just, I mean, uh, the equanimity of samatha is cessation of craving, no more modeling nirvana. The equanimity, the equanimity of samatha? Yes. The, the sequence of cessation of craving, no more modeling in nirvana. Is that that? Sequence? Well, the, the, it is equanimity and insight leads to no more modeling and nirvana. The equanimity can come from either, uh, it can be the equanimity of insight by itself, or it can be the equanimity of samatha by itself. So I didn't know what that equanimity of samatha was. That's the equanimity that comes, the samatha is, uh, uh, is, is characterized by joy, tranquility, and equanimity. And the equanimity of samatha is the result of the joy and the tranquility. So when you are, are joyfully, joyful and innerly tranquil, you are happy. And so this means that you no longer react with desire and aversion to the things that arise in the mind. So when we talk tomorrow about the 12 links of dependent origination, craving is the link that we want to break. When we break the link of craving, then we have the experience of, of nirvana. And you'll see that there's a sequence of events. A feeling arises, pleasant or unpleasant. And normally, as soon as the feeling arises, it triggers craving. But when you have equanimity, craving does not arise. So it's the, the equanimity is the key. The equanimity and the and the insight. There needs to be some understanding as well. Okay. The the last the fourth of the three characteristics are 
But then I wanted to do the second in the order that I had them earlier. It doesn't matter which one. Dissatisfaction. We already talked about that a little bit before. Maybe we don't really say need to say much more about that, but just have a look at it here and tell me if you have any questions we need to say more. Life by its very nature is difficult, flawed, and imperfect. Do you agree with that? Yes. Okay. <laughs> and deep, lasting satisfaction, true happiness, complete freedom from suffering can never be achieved so long as we misunderstand the nature of human experience and the true nature of reality. And what is that? That is that everything that is impermanent, fabricated by the mind, empty of self, nature of being what it appears to be, None of the, anything that is described by that, which is everything, can ever bring happiness. And so long as your mind believes that the object of experience are real in themselves and grasps to them as the source of, ah, I some words there, ah, as the source of suffering or happiness, the result will be dissatisfaction. And all of our attempts to manipulate and control what happens to us in order to make ourselves happy, are doomed to fail. So, if I only had this, if I only was rich, or in this other view of karma, if you believe that karma, uh, that by doing good acts you can make good things happen to you, that's just, that's just another way of trying to manipulate the world. So if you go around doing good things so that good things will happen to you so that you will become happy, it's not going to work. <laughs> Happiness doesn't come from the things that happen to you. And all attempts to produce happiness by that means are doomed to fail. Okay? So it's only through the wisdom of insight and abandoning the delusion that causes craving that you can find true and lasting happiness. That doesn't mean doing good things doesn't mean that there's doesn't mean that there's no point in doing good things. There's a lot of good reason to do good things. As a matter of fact, when we understand karma properly, there's really more good reason than ever to do good things. In other words, it's not for self reinforcement. That's right. That's right. It's yeah. doing things with the right understanding. Doing good things with the right understanding. So, so I don't. I, I I hadn't planned on discussing the last two major topics, karma and uh, dependent arising today, because if I did, there'd be nothing to talk about tomorrow, and we'd want your money back. <laughs> so I'm saving those. But we have some time left, and I think it would be wonderful for us to sit together again. But just, you know, if there's any, uh, any other questions about anything we've talked about all day, or any feedback about how you feel about where we've gotten to with this. Yeah? At what point does a cup come into existence? At what point does a cup come into existence? Yes. Like like the cup was in the kitchen, yeah. and I didn't see it, and I wasn't aware of the cup. I was aware of, like, I'm sitting here, I'm in the room, they're talking, I'm listening. But at what point does it go from there? 
It comes into existence for you when you experience the sensations that your mind uses as the basis for generating the perception of the cup. It comes into existence for you at that time. But it only comes into existence for you, for your mind. Because the ultimate reality that lies behind your perception of cutness and behind the sensations you have, that doesn't change. That's an, an ongoing process, and it does not consist of the part that we consider the cut. The ultimate reality is the total, totality of ultimate reality in its, its uh, indivisible wholeness. And it continues in its indivisible wholeness even after your mind creates the cup in your mind. So what happens when you experience the sensation, the sensations and your mind organizes into cup? Something has come into existence in your mind. What existed outside of your mind has not changed. It was the same before, it is the same now, and it will be the same after. Uh, although we can be careful using the word same, because it is a continue it's a process that from the point of view of time, you know, it it's not it's not the it's not the same in in two consecutive moments. But it is the same reality. And there is no separate part of it corresponding to the cup. Except in the sense that when we dropped our little wire cage, were you here for the wire cage discussion? Dropped in the room? No. You were here for the two looking at the sky? <laughs> All right, it's the, the separateness that is the cup does not exist outside of your mind. Is your sense organs and your mind are what isolates it. Have you ever looked at cloud formations and said, oh, look, there's, a, there's a, an elephant, and you see all these different things, okay? The different things that you see in the cloud formation, they exist in your mind only, right? But they're, 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 the clouds are there. Well, it, it, it depends. I'm seeing it, I'm seeing it a certain way at that moment, at that instant. That's right. But around me, people are also seeing clouds, and I can't, I, I can't negate what they're seeing. That's right. I can only, I can only see what I'm seeing, right? That's right. But the, the, it's an interesting thing about this watching clouds analogy. If you, if you watch clouds with somebody else, you can do the same thing with rocks and mountains, whatever. But we use clouds, and say, so, "Oh, look over there! That guy looks just like an elephant." I say, "Where? What do you mean, right there?" Oh, yeah, I see it too. Yeah, it looks like an elephant. Or sometimes somebody says, no, 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 actually, what I see is a... Anteater. A what? Anteater. An anteater. Right? <laughs> and you may try to see their anteater, and they may try to see your elephant, and neither one of you can, can do it. Okay? But the clouds, you know, the clouds are both there. The, the elephant and the anteater exist in the minds of the person that sees them. Right? Now, maybe if you had a tube like this and it was fixed in position 
And you can say, there's my elephant. And you have the person that sees an anteater come and look through the tube, so they're looking at exactly the same way you did. They might say, oh, okay, you're right. It is. When you look at it this way. But I was looking at it, and they go and they move the tube over like that and say, see? And you say, oh, okay, you're right. It's an anteater now. Okay. But it's always, it was just the clouds. And as a matter of fact, the clouds are changing. And so your elephant is going to turn into a butterfly or a seated Buddha. Your anteater is going to turn into a horse. And, you know, it all just keeps changing. But your mind, your mind is doing two things. It's isolating a part out of a continuous whole. And it's imputing a particular nature to that. Right? But the clouds themselves are empty of both uh, of, of objects with either that self-nature or that, or, or that self-existent separateness. Yeah. The, the, last, the last thing, it is only through the wisdom of insight and the abandoning of delusion that causes craving that we can find true and lasting happiness. Yeah. yeah. Um, so when we, when we talk about uh, wisdom, uh, wisdom of insight is understanding um, emptiness and the nature of reality as much as we can intellectually and then hopefully direct. Yeah, what, what causes, the, but the, <clears throat> the wisdom of insight that actually causes craving to cease is not intellectual. The intellectual understanding is just, it's an aid along the way. And you can have, you can achieve that wisdom of insight without first achieving the intellectual understanding. It's just that the intellectual understanding makes it easier because then you know what you're looking for. Okay? But the intellectual understanding can never produce the effect by itself. And it is, in fact, unnecessary. It's only, it's only helpful. But yes? And the abandoning, the delusion that is abandoned <clears throat> that causes craving, um, yeah. that, that is like... Um, so when, when we truly understand that something's not coming at us, and then um, and there's no separateness, yeah. um, then when that very irritating coworker or child um, does that very irritating thing, we the re- like how can you start to gauge like, like the reaction? Because if you're truly if, if you're truly, like, it doesn't necessarily have to happen all at once. It can, you can be getting better and better, right? Yes, more it, more it gets better. As a matter of fact, that is how it happens. It gets better and better by okay. degrees. Yeah. Oh, and then the direct perception is just the last moment of it, the last kind of remnant of it? Uh, well, the, the direct perception you're, you're talking about is that experience of nirvana, right. uh, direct perception of emptiness. The, that, that is the insight experience that leads to the, to the culminating insight and makes you a stream enterer. But even after you're a stream enterer, you're still going to have, you're not, a stream enterer is not free from suffering yet. A stream enterer has a whole lot less delusion, but still has delusion. It has a whole lot more wisdom, but doesn't have perfect wisdom. So leading up to that point, as your, as your understanding and equanimity increase, then this coworker or this child does something and you feel the irritation, but you realize the irritation is coming from you. And you learn, first of all, you learn not to react to the irritation. And that's really good. 
and then you learn to let go of the irritation itself. And it, what's happening is you're becoming more and more equanimous. And given the right circumstances, you could go for a period of time where none of these things produce any irritation at all in you. But you're still vulnerable. This situation changes a little bit. You get a little bit too tired, uh, too stressed, too whatever. And all of a sudden, the irritation is back. And not only that, it can be that not only is the irritation back, but you start doing and saying the same dumb things in response to it that you did before. Because until you've had this, this experience, even the equanimity that you have is the result of causes and conditions that are still subject to change. You haven't, you haven't changed your view of reality at a deep enough level yet. Right. Now you have, you have your, your experience of nirvana, your direct experience of emptiness. And that produces a kind of wisdom, a kind of knowledge and understanding that changes the way you are. Specifically what it changes is you no longer believe that you are the separate self, that you, that you still feel like you are. And your ego constructs have, been, have become transparent. Now, immediately after that experience, the, the co-worker, the child, they're not going to produce any irritation at all. But as the weeks and months go by, and you get further from it, the habit, the habitual patterns in your mind are still there. So you're going to find, oh, sometimes the irritation does arise. So Now, if you're very mindful, and your insight was really strong, then you will see that irritation arising, and you'll let go of it immediately. Or, if you're not quite that mindful, you might go ahead and say the kind of things that you used to. You can still... But what you'll see is, oh boy, I'm just making suffering for myself and this other person, and I know better than that. I don't need to do that. And you'll stop yourself immediately, and, and you'll make whatever, you'll do whatever you can to correct. But, even as a strange mentor, you're still going to have those experiences, it's just that they're going to be much milder, that the knowledge, the understanding you have is going to counteract them more deeply. You've still got work to do. You've got to, you've got to uproot uh, that, that craving, and you've you've got to uh, complete the process of, of the accumulation of wisdom. Um, stream entry involves the the ego self becoming transparent, but you still feel like you're a separate self. And as long as you feel like you're a separate self there's still going to be the possibility of different forms of craving arising. When you become, when you reach the second stage, you begin to uproot that craving completely, and when you've succeeded in that, you reach the third stage, which is the non-returner. The only craving you have now is the craving for existence, and the only delusion that you are still subject to is the feeling that you're separate, even though that you know you're not. And so, you've advanced enormously now. You're never going to become irritated in the same way by things that happen to you in the world. But 
there is that there is still this certain degree of subtle craving that's there, and there is a certain degree of delusion because you still feel like a separate self. You don't feel at one with everything. That's the complete awakening that you're looking for when that sense of being separate disappears. And when that sense of being separate disappears, there is absolutely no craving at all left. What is the fastest track to get to that root, uh, destroy that? The fastest track yeah, like in terms of... From where you are right now? <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Well, that's really when we start. When we, tomorrow we're going to talk about, about karma and dependent origination, and this will give you great insight into the fast track. But if we go back to the Eightfold Path, let me talk about it in terms of that. This is the path. This is the fast track. Okay? So, if you, in addition to... I mean, this, this intellectual understanding that you're getting right now, that's the first step in the fast track. But remember, it's one that, depending on your capacity, you don't need to become brilliant and able to debate and, and, and everything else. You just need to understand it well enough to know what you're looking for. This part here is you start, you practice mindfulness in your daily life, and you start cultivating a more correct view of reality based on what you've understood. This, this is where karma comes in, practice of, of virtue. What you're really doing when you practice virtue is you're learning to catch yourself every time you start to act out of craving, out of desire and aversion. Because the only reason we do unvirtuous things is that we're driven by by craving. That is the only reason. And so, if you make the determination that I'm going to keep precepts, I'm going to practice virtue every moment of my life, what you're really doing is saying, I'm going to practice catching myself every time craving arises. And at the very least, I'm not going to act out of the craving. And at best, I'm going to be able to dispense with that craving as it arises. I'm going to make myself into the kind of person that is no longer subject to craving in the same way. So that's that's part of the fast track. So you've, you've got to, oops, to, to be on the fast track, you have to practice this, this part here, and you have to practice this part here. Without virtue and with right, without right intention, you can meditate till you've got calluses on your butt. <laughs> and it'll be really good for you in a lot of ways. But what That's the meditation that you're going to talk about tomorrow? What's that? That's the good action that you're going to talk about. Tomorrow. Well, what we're going to talk about tomorrow is tomorrow we're still in the realm of right understanding, but we're going to be talking about how this works, why the practice of right intention and why the practice of virtue can make the changes that it do. It does. The understanding karma helps us understand how that happens. And understanding the links of dependent origination is going to help us to understand how, as a result of uh, karma and, med uh, and meditation both, that we can actually achieve the, the, the end result, the, the end, the cessation of craving. What the meditation does, and meditation is a very important part of this as well. 
But remember, you have to have you have to have insight. Your intellectual understanding of these things has to become a profound, intuitive change in the way you view reality. That's what insight means. It's a change in your intuitive understanding. And the meditation is the most direct way to achieve that. So you practice right effort, right concentration, and right mindfulness. It results in insight experiences and accumulation of insight. It also results in equanimity. It results in the equanimity of samatha and the equanimity of insight. And so when the understanding and the equanimity come together, then if you've done this work, then you'll, you'll arrive at the place you need to come to. The, there is a relationship between the practice of virtue and the practice of meditation, because your meditation practice gets stuck at a certain point if you aren't practicing virtue. It's really hard to get past that. That's why you can meditate till there's calluses on your butt and not achieve awakening if you don't practice virtue and right intention as well. This is the fast track, in other words. There's different versions of this fast track. Sit facing the ball and just sit. Don't do anything. Don't focus on anything, etc. That's one, that's one way of practicing the meditation part of it. But the virtue part of it, you still have to practice the same way. The understanding part, you can skip a lot of that. And you can hope that by practicing right intention and virtue and some form of meditation or another, that it will get you there. There are other methods you can... You know, uh, a really uh, as as you'll see if, if we go on with this past this weekend, right intention and the practice of virtue are both something that we started getting in the habit of describing as fake it until you make it, act like you're act like you're a Buddha until you become one, and it really works. That's what you're doing when you're practicing virtue is you're acting as if you're already wiser and more enlightened than you really are. And it makes the it makes the changes. So, in terms of another method that's been developed, it just takes the fact that that this this fast track that the Buddha gave us 2,500 years ago embodies fake it until you make it. So then there's tantra. Tantra is saying, okay, if we're going to fake it till we make it, let's really fake it big time. <laughs> <laughs> but if you examine tantra. You're still doing the same thing. You're practicing right intention. You're still practicing virtue. If you're practicing tantra properly, that is. Yeah. You're still following this. It, it's tantra, zen, all these different things. They're just different ways of doing the same thing. As long as they are just different ways of doing the same thing, they all work. And some will work better for some people than others. Um, but if you do any of them in a way that doesn't incorporate every part of this fast track, the chances of it working diminish accordingly. Okay? So if you practice tantra without virtue, good luck. <laughs> and uh, if you practice any aspect of this, uh, of this without the rest, you know, that's all I can say is good luck. 
if you could think that just by being a virtuous person and creating tons of good karma, that you'll become awakened, uh, it may happen, but it's going to be real touch and go whether it happens in this lifetime. So if you want to happen seven days or seven years or something like that, best to follow the whole path. All of these parts work together. And to understand all of these different methods. Because, you know, whatever method somebody has practiced that's worked for them, the method that I practice, that's what I know best. And I can guarantee you that from my point of view, they're the, they're the fastest and the bestest. Of course, I can't go back and do it over according to another method. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so everybody is going to be in the same situation I am. There's, there's the way I came up the mountain, and I know that way, and um, so it's got to be the best way, right? Well, I'll be honest with you, I know there's a lot of other ways that are best ways for other people. So it's not the only best way. <laughs> My way is the best way, but it's not the only best way. <laughs> Does your compassion for other beings just naturally increase as you... It naturally comes... You see, practicing compassion is part of right intention. Right? Compassion for other beings is an absolutely essential part of this fast track. And you do it as part of the practice of, of intention. But once again, it's fake it until you make it. Until you've had that realization, that stream entry experience, your compassion is not genuine compassion. But once you've achieved stream entry, then you now have, you now attain to a kind of compassion and it's, and it's inevitable. You cannot attain that degree of understanding of the true nature of reality without achieving true compassion. So, it's impossible for anybody to achieve even the first stage of enlightenment without achieving true compassion. Uh, what's variable is how much compassion that you practice on your way to the first stage of enlightenment. But if you practice none at all, none at all, then I'm going to go right back to what I said about any of these other things. If you practice none at all, good luck. But you're leaving out a really important part of the fast track. So do you meditate on Yes, Tonglen, a loving kindness meditation, these are all ways of cultivating compassion. And it's important that you cultivate compassion in as many ways as you can. Formal practices are one thing, but what's really important is that you, that you practice it in your daily life. The mindfulness in your daily life, equanimity in your daily life, compassion in your daily life, all of these things... Um, one thing you could say is, if you follow the Eightfold Path and somehow compartmentalized your life so that you followed all eight parts of the path in separate components, but there was still this other part of your life where it's okay, I've done that, I'm finished for today, I don't need to go back to it, it's going to be, it's going to be like swimming with lead weights on your feet. So you do the formal practices and then you do it in, in the rest of your life as well. You had another question? I thought you did. No. Many questions. Many. Mm -hmm. clarification. Um, 
the nature of the human mind is such that it cannot understand ultimate reality. Yeah. And then how did so Buddha then understood it, or it's to be understood? Well, the thing is, the nature of the human mind is that it can understand a lot about ultimate reality. But it's, it's all of this understanding is coming from. On the one hand, it's coming from inference. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, it's coming from knowing what ultimate reality is not. All the descriptions of ultimate reality that you find, they're described as apophatic, means that they're always stated in the negative. Right. You cannot describe ultimate reality. Uh, you can't go very far in a description in positive terms. About as far as you can go is, is, it is, uh, is, is to say that there is this aspect of wholeness to it. Other than that, every word you use is going to have some negative, like indivisible, right? Infinite, eternal, you know. All of the different adjectives that have ever been developed in human history to describe ultimate reality, or God is ultimate reality, they always have in common that they are apophatic. They are a negation of something. Because your mind can't create model and your mind can't grasp ultimate, the nature of ultimate reality in itself. Even the mind of a Buddha. Well, Maybe even, I usually say even the human mind of a Buddha. Because when a being becomes a Buddha and is alive in the world, they still have a human body and they still have a human mind. But there is a, a part of the Buddha that has realized, has realized ultimate truth. And that's where he, that's that's like becoming one with God. That's like becoming one with ultimate reality. So the human mind of a Buddha can never grasp ultimate reality, but the Buddha nature dwells permanently within ultimate reality, and always has, always did before that human person became awakened and always will because we are a part of ultimate reality and here's another thing to say that we are not a part like a wheel is a part of a car we are a part like the corner of a holographic negative is a part of a holographic negative you know that's the best the best modern analogy we have is the hologram you take a holographic picture you have the holographic negative, you put the laser light through it, and you see the three-dimensional image. You cut it in half, both halves still give you the image. You cut it into a thousand pieces, and each tiny piece still produces the whole three-dimensional image. And that is the sense in which that we are a part of ultimate reality. Uh, the modern metaphor is the hologram. The much more ancient metaphor is Indra's net. This is, you imagine a net, infinite in all directions. And at every, every point where the fibers cross in the net is a jewel. And each jewel has an infinite number of facets. And each facet reflects all of the other jewels in the net. And that's Indra's net. And so that is the way that we are a part 
of ultimate reality. The, the whole, the entirety is in every part, and every part is, is in the whole. And so that's what I mean by Buddha nature. And that's what I mean when people say, well, we're already fully enlightened. But it's foolish to say, well, okay, we're already foolish to, uh, fully enlightened, and there's no point in me doing anything, because you're going to go on suffering if you do that. So a lot of the, lot of the Buddha Dharma is internally consistent, which is very attractive. And then you get to this one place where you have ultimate reality, and you can't explain it. You can only explain what it's not. That's and right. then you're just basically left, we're left to basically, basically say, okay, That's I will right. have to believe that. That's because right. my mind is working on trying to believe it, but my mind can't grasp it, so it can't believe it. That's right. But your mind, your mind will believe it. There is a point where your mind will believe it, even though it still can't grasp it. And this is, uh, the, the emptiness idea was really a reduction of all of these negatives to just a single one. It's just the one all-encompassing right. negative. <laughs> Ultimate reality is emptiness. Um, I have a question about, is Jesus like a second Buddha? Jesus like a second Buddha? Because he had pretty much the same teaching. Well, it, uh, there, there is really good reason to believe that, that Jesus may well have uh, achieved the same realization that the Buddha did. Yeah. Um, the, the difference between Jesus and the person that we call the Buddha is, first of all, Jesus died very young, and the Buddha had 44, 45 more years to teach. And Jesus wasn't able to leave behind a set of instructions as to how to uh, achieve whatever it was he achieved, and the Buddha was able to leave behind uh, pretty detailed instructions of how to get from here to there. So we can only speculate as to the the subjective nature of, of Jesus of Nazareth experience and Siddhartha Gautama's experience. But if we look at what little we know about Jesus and his life, it's easy to say that, that uh, it's fairly easy to say that it looks like he, he if, if Jesus and Buddha sat down to talk, they'd really, they'd be in, in, in great agreement with each other. Well, it, it promotes the practice of love and compassion. What's that? The love and compassion. Yes, he, he certainly did. That, that is probably one of the clearest things that has come down to us from Jesus, is, uh, is the value and importance of love and compassion. Um, unfortunately, that isn't the part of Jesus' teaching that is most often stressed. It would be lovely if it were. And, uh, Maybe someday it will be. Um, what was the part that you thought Jesus had in common with Buddha? What's that? What was the part um, of Jesus' teachings, or what was the part that you thought Jesus and Buddha had the most in common? Well, that I think that, I think that I think that Jesus had the same uh, insights into the the nature of ultimate reality, which he described as God. Which were 
I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> the, the well, some of the things, some of the things that you know, now remember what we know about what Jesus actually said is really, really sparse, and different people read it different way. And the when the Christian Church was forming, they got together. All the bishops got together in Nicaea in the year 300 or something or other, and they decided that things had to be interpreted in a particular way. And I don't necessarily interpret things the same way the Nicene Creed does. But it seemed that uh, Buddha, or that Jesus understood the God as ultimate reality and that, that we are all in our inherent nature one with God. Right? That God is already in us. The Buddha nature is already in us. That the God is in us, and that we are, are in God. He seemed to understand that the separation that we experience comes from our own mind. Okay. Okay, and then it needs to be overcome. And of course, he did teach love, kindness, compassion, and all these other things. Okay, so basically, the separation is yeah. this thing in our imagination. Yeah. <laughs> that wasn't uh, what he said. He said, "Go, go into your closet. Go and sit in your closet and pray," uh, which is kind of similar to go and look at a wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. The kingdom of God is within. That's true. You know, and the, the only reason that Christianity has survived to the present day is that it it, it does embody a lot of really profound truth. Because things that don't embody profound truth tend not to last. So there is truth in it. But what, what I, you know, and I'm familiar with this. I, I spent some time in a seminary, thought I was going to become a priest, things like that. Tuba Han wrote a book that compared Jesus to Jesus and the Yes, as a matter of fact, he did. Yeah. Is that the one that's called Buddha and Jesus as Brothers? Yeah, there's two. Yeah, there's two books. There's yeah, two, a anyway. conversation with Buddha and Jesus, and then another one. I can't remember the other one. Yeah, there's a couple of them. But Dalai Lama did a whole piece on it as well. There's a video series that he did. But there's such a the, the teachings of Jesus, we don't have anything directly. We only have what other people said that he said. Uh, and even those don't agree with each other. And none of those are very long. With, we have some of the same problem with the Buddha, but at least we have a whole lot more material to work with, to draw upon, than, than the Christians do. And we have a similar situation. We have all these different versions of Buddhism that, that try to interpret the information we do have from the Buddha in different ways. We also have the same situation in Buddhism that we do in Christianity, that there are schools of Buddhism that feel like people who have come later have a better take on things than the record we have from what the Buddha said. And so they don't even look at the Buddhist sutras. You know, the same way we have we have elements within Christianity that seem to disregard the Gospels and, and base their belief systems on the theological points of view that have been developed by other people over the course of the 
past 2,000 years. And that's the problem with religions. All religions, Buddhist religions, Christian religions, everything else. And in every case, there's so much more to be gained. By going back to the source with an open mind and trying to understand what it was that has been so powerful that it has carried forward to the present day. In, in each of the cases where a person attempts to go back to the source, don't you find there is a problem of translation? Because I'm not going to read Pali or or, or, well, or, any, or or Aramaic or whatever. Yeah. So how can we be sure we're getting <laughs> getting it? Well, and, and the, the, I tried to give you some, some tools to use last night. But the thing is that you've got to, to keep in mind that your translator understands it in a particular way, and they're going to choose English words and English, and English sentence structure that expresses their way of seeing it. But if they're a good translator, they haven't, they haven't totally rewritten it. And so one of the values is looking comparing different translations. This is tremendously illuminating. Um, and I know you don't want to, if you learn, if you, if you can learn the Pali, then you can look at the different translations and then you can look at the Pali and say, oh, wow, this is the translation that I'm going to accept because I understand what this word means and this guy is using a completely different word because he wants to make it sound in a different way. And they do that. They do, they do that. They do that intentionally because they're so sure that their interpretation is right, that they write it out in English in a way that whoever reads it, it will interpret the way they do. But if you don't want to learn Pali, still, compare different translations. And no matter whose translation you read, keep in mind that the key words are, have been chosen out of a number of possibilities, and therefore the ones that were chosen are the ones that reflected the translator's point of view, not necessarily the Buddha's point of view. But the more, if you're going to look at sutras, then the more different sutras you have to look at to sort all of this out. Because it's even it's not just translators. People have added stuff, and people have taken stuff away. If the if the version of a sutra they got says something that their school doesn't agree with, they erased it. And if a sutra, sutra they got doesn't mention something that they think is true and really important, and if the Buddha didn't say it, he should have, they write it in. And that did happen. So now we have, we have a Chinese version of the sutras, we have a Sanskrit version of the sutras, and we have a Pali version of the sutras, and scholars can line them up side by side. And these additions and omissions, some of the additions and omissions are glaring and obvious, and there's quite a few of them. But there's all those others that you're not so sure about. Yeah. A uh, quick question about craving uh, and or the whole practice of uh, virtue. Um, you were saying that a big part of it is, um, of course, increasing mindfulness so that you can catch yourself uh, in behaving out of craving and starting to stop doing that and um, learning how to work toward not having those cravings. Mm -hmm. But as we, you know, usually 
go about our lives, almost everything we do is based on craving. Yeah. So uh, it would be great to talk more about that. I don't know if you're going to talk about virtue tomorrow. Or not I, we karma. Won't, probably won't have a chance to talk about the specific, specifics of how you do that tomorrow, but that's a big part of what I intend to be talking about in the coming weeks and months. We'll be talking about the practice of, of virtue, which is the practice of mindfulness. And the, the point of, the, of keeping precepts is, it, yes, throughout the course of your day, almost everything you say, do, and think is driven by craving. So where do you begin? Well, the precepts give you a place to begin. Try to catch yourself whenever you're about to say something that isn't true. Okay? And then you have to see, well, why? Why was I about to... I mean, the, the precepts are not about following rules. If all you ever did was stop yourself from saying something that's not true, well, it's better than if you kept on lying, but not that much. <laughs> the, the precepts are a practice. When you find yourself about to say something that's not true, you try to understand why. Where is it coming from? Where is the craving that's driving that? So the purpose of the precepts is to give you a place to start. So start, start with the things that you are about to do which are in most direct and obvious contradiction with the precept. That gives you a beginning place to work. And you can even start with just one precept. You know, if you try to keep a whole bunch of precepts at the same time and you find that it's too much and you get over get lost and, you know, well, just do one for a while and get good at that. As your mindfulness improves, then you can take on more and more. When you have become a, not just a stream entrant, but you've become uh, what's called a once-returner, you've reached the second of the four stages of enlightenment, your whole life is going to become a process of catching and nailing every instance of craving that comes up. But don't don't even hope to catch every instance of craving until you reach that stage in the process. You can't. You might catch it. Do you always stop it? The, the point is, first of all, to catch it. If you can stop it, great. If you can't, then the thing is to be mindful of, to continue to be mindful of it. If you can't stop yourself from doing it, be mindful while you're doing it, be mindful of the consequences, be mindful of how you feel afterwards, be mindful of how other people feel afterwards. Still Keep gonna, being mindful. Still going to have the cookie. <laughs> well, <laughs> but the, the thing is, it, it's, it is, it's a progress by stages. You get better and better at it, but you get better at it more and more quickly as you go along. It's just like meditation. The first little while of meditation, it's so difficult, it's so discouraging, and then you start getting good at it. And the better at it you get, the faster you get better. Okay, well, I don't think we have time to sit and meditate and let you go home by 4 o'clock. So, I would suggest you go home and meditate. <laughs> and maybe we'll have more time to meditate tomorrow.
I apologize for doing this to you, saying that we would spend a third of the time in meditation and then we don't. But, um, but well, we're the ones who ask you questions. Yeah, yeah it's always your fault. What's that? The progress. The progress is now. I describe it as exponential rather than linear. It it makes a curve like this. For a long time, it seems like you made no progress at all, and then it starts accelerating. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I'm going home with hope. <laughs> yes, go home with hope. Come back with more questions. Have a look at the rest of the handout for tomorrow. We're talking about karma and the 12 links of the handout. Thank you. 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 Thank you.